I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 2. We will be there momentarily, but I have uh, an announcement prior to that. As you, if you're a guest with us, you wouldn't know that, but if you remember, you know that we are led by a plurality of elders, that, and, and we understand in the Bible that elders and pastors are the same thing. So I'm not the only pastor here at Gray Road. We have six of them, two that are on staff and four that are not. And right now, whenever we look at potentially adding a man uh, as an elder to our team, there's a kind of four-stage process. There's the identification of that man, either the elders think of it or someone recommends him or he expresses that, uh, that he feels that this is uh, something God wants him to do. Then we evaluate um, because the mere identification is not enough. A man must meet qualifications in order to be an elder, according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So we evaluate, we explain the duties of an elder, we examine his theology, we examine his character, we get references from neighbors and, and work colleagues uh, because the, the Bible says he must have a good reputation with outsiders. Uh, and then we move on to the affirmation stage where the elders must unanimously affirm a man to be an elder, and then we come to the congregation to say, we're asking you to pray and consider and affirm and and decide whether you affirm this man as qualified to serve as an elder among us. And then that fourth stage is the actual, the ordination or the installation of uh, the person, the man for the, the duty. This morning, on behalf of the elders, I am delighted to present to you Gary Strange as candidate for elder. We have walked through this. You don't have to say anything, Gary. I'm just going to, but you will in the future, all right? Uh, (laughs) But we have walked through this process with Gary to this point. He has been unanimously approved by our elders, and we present him to you for your consideration and for your affirmation. Gary's been part of Gray Road for 26 years. He spent 15 of those years on the field in Africa, first in Kenya and then in South Africa. When uh, you'll, Many of you who have been around know the name Udawala Baptist Church. Well, that is the church that, by God's grace, uh, Gary, along with his wife Mary Jane, planted there. Uh, in Nairobi. Uh, and since uh, I, I think we'd have to put retiring in quotation marks for Gary, since retiring from the field and coming home, not only has he been back to teach more theology to pastors in Africa multiple times, uh, but he's been teaching here among us. He's been teaching Sunday school. He leads a growth group. He te- has taught uh, systematic theology down at Greenwood Village for the residents there. He helped teach the, South, the Bible study at Southport Middle School. He served on the missions team. He's, uh, you heard him as he baptized last week. He was, has been part of discipling men in our congregation. Um, this is, by the way, this is a wonderful way to use your retirement, all of these things. And so we praise the Lord for that. We're excited about the chance to serve alongside Gary, and we are asking you to prayerfully consider affirming his appointment as an elder among us. Now, in your mailbox today, if you didn't already get it, there's an envelope with a letter and then an affirmation form. On one side of that form is Gary's testimony and, 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 and a brief uh, biography. 
and on the back is the actual affirmation form itself. And so you'll respond in one of two ways. One, I mean, read this. I'm not going to read it to you now. Uh, One is to affirm Gary as an elder among us, and the second way is to raise concerns about Gary's qualification. Now, everybody who who has been gone through this has had this same process. Um, And so, uh, what we ask, though, is that you put your name on it, that you sign and print your name. Well, why would we do that? Well, the letter says this, but first of all, if you're affirming Gary, you should be glad to have your name affirming Gary. And if you're raising a concern, um, we want to be able to, first of all, if we can't read your writing, we want to be able to understand what you've written. We also would want to more thoroughly understand whatever it is you might raise. So we need to be able to connect with you. Anything that's not signed and doesn't have a name on it, it doesn't count one way or the other. All right? So we want, the church is not a place of anonymity, the church is a place where we are known and where we know one another. And so that's, that's, that's why. And so what we're asking is three weeks from today, April 11th, that you would have these back. There's a kiosk over here, right, Debbie? Over here next to the church office where we want you to put these. If you forget somehow to clear out your box or if you're watching via live stream, whatever's left in the boxes is going to go in the mail tomorrow. Okay, so if you, uh, but if you are still not going to be here by April 11th, you either need to drop it off or mail it in by April 9th, which is the Friday before that. Okay, so the idea is by April 11th, we'll have them all, and then Lord willing, if we affirm Gary as a congregation to be an elder among us, um, then we will, uh, then we will ordain, install him the following Sunday, April the 18th. All right? So why don't we pray now and ask for God's wisdom in this, and then, and then we'll, we'll go to the Bible. Father, how we thank you for your love for us, how we thank you for your church and for your word. I thank you for Gary and for Mary Jane. I thank you for the way you saved them, the way that you have used them to advance your kingdom here and in Africa, and I I pray, God, that you will uh, give us as a congregation wisdom and unity with regard to this decision about him being an elder, and uh, Lord, if you place him in that office, I pray, God, that he will be used for your glory and for the good of others for as long as you see fit, and we pray it in Jesus' name, Amen. amen, amen. Thank you, Gary. Philippians chapter 2. And we are going to begin reading. We're going to read just two verses this morning, verse 12 and verse 13. If you're using a pew Bible and you don't know where to go to find that, it is on page 981. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And this is what Paul has written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's briefly pray again. Father, now we come to your word. Teach us by your spirit. 
that we might glorify you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Prior to living in Indiana, I had literally never seen a Wesleyan church. I had never met a person who went to a Wesleyan church. Uh, I have since learned that they do exist outside of Indiana, but I had never run across one. And I remember talking with uh, a Wesleyan youth pastor one day. It was a youth pastor's lunch. And uh, he, I remember he looked across the table at me and he, said, and he said this, which is an interesting way to move from small talk into serious talk. He said, Baptists don't really believe in living a holy life. I said, um, how you figure? <laughs> and, and so he proceeded to tell me that everything that he'd ever heard from Baptists was all about just that one moment of conversion. You pray a prayer, you, get, you are baptized, and that's kind of it. That's the only thing Baptists ever think about is that moment. Nothing after conversion matters. Well, we certainly do believe conversion matters, don't we? We certainly do believe that the only right response to the good news about Jesus, about His life, His death, and His resurrection is to turn in repentance from sin and to God for salvation, and that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness of sin, there is no salvation, there is no hope when we stand before God. That is true, amen? Don't you care about that? Wasn't it exciting to hear about all the people that have been coming to faith and growing in Christ there in, 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 in India? And we're doing that through our partnership. And we're seeking to do that through our work here. We celebrate when folks profess their faith in Jesus publicly. But I had to explain to my friend that it's simply not true that what happens after conversion doesn't matter. What happens after some moment, some experience doesn't matter. That's simply not true. That the Bible is clear that just as, a, just as a baby is meant to grow into adulthood, so the one who is born again must grow up in spiritual maturity. And this growing, this process is an intentional process. It takes time. It takes energy. We, we, we have to walk through pain, actually. We've seen that recently, that, that the Bible says that our growth won't come apart from pain. So we have to walk through that, that the world and the flesh and the devil actually work against us in this process. And so we have to be determined. We have to be diligent. We have to be dependent on God. We have to persevere. It takes work. And actually, that's what Paul indicates in these two verses. The Christian life is a life of work. He tells us here, work out your salvation. So let's first think just about that phrase, work out your salvation. Last week, we looked at verses 1 to 11, where Paul leaves us 
in a sense of awe at the person and work of Jesus, doesn't he? Don't you finish verse 11 as you read? Every time you read Philippians 2.11, don't you just finish with a sense of awe that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? And if you just let that silence hang, it is a silence of awe, it is a silence of wonder that as we saw last week, he is God and yet he humbled himself to go to the cross and then his Father has exalted him to have the name above every name. And now, with that sense of awe hanging in the air, Paul says, therefore, in light of that, work out your salvation. But really, before we actually get to what it does mean, we probably should begin with what it doesn't mean. Because there can be great confusion about a phrase like that. When, when, when just the average Joe who doesn't really read the Bible, doesn't read what's before, what's after, maybe doesn't understand, he's heard about all this stuff about just receiving Christ and the free gift of salvation. And then he reads a phrase like, work out your own salvation. Well, that can just be confusing. So let's think first about what it doesn't mean. And what it doesn't mean is that somehow we work for our salvation. That is not what this phrase means. We do not earn it. Now, when we, when we think of work and earning going together, right? You will go to work this week in order to earn a paycheck. You know, a child, a teenage, uh, teenager might walk door to door with a lawnmower because they want to work in order to earn money for a car, for a computer, for a bicycle, for a gaming system, for whatever it is. Working and earning go hand in hand in much of life, but not in this phrase. And not when it comes to us becoming right with God. We do not earn our salvation. We do not work for it. It is a gift. Listen to Romans 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Faith is based on the fact that one cannot work in order to be saved. The one who does not work but believes in him, Paul says in Romans 4. I mean, if salvation was the wage that we are due, then basically when we arrive, as it were, at the gates, we just bang on the door and say, you know what I did? Let me in. But that's not how the Bible talks about salvation. Essentially, in that same scenario, if we were to arrive there, the announcement isn't, you saw what I did, now let me in. You, you've seen what Jesus did. And he says, I can come in. You see, Galatians 2 says that by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one. There's no good work, there's no amount of obedience to the law that earns salvation. So that is not what it means. So let's move on to what Paul actually does mean. 
So if you think about working for our salvation as getting a paycheck, which isn't how it works, working out our salvation, I would suggest, is like working a puzzle that you get for Christmas. Right? Of course, that makes perfect sense to you. I got, a, I got a puzzle just this last Christmas, but I didn't actually have the energy to put it together because I was sick. But the entire puzzle was in the box. It wasn't purchased at a garage sale or the Dollar Tree, so I'm trusting that all the pieces are in that box. Everything that it takes to put that thing together is in there. I don't, need, I, I don't add pieces to make the puzzle. I don't subtract pieces to make the puzzle. My responsibility is to work it out, is to connect the pieces, to look at the picture constantly, to see what it's supposed to look like, and to get to work putting it together. And that's essentially what it means to work out your salvation. God has given us everything that we need through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have freedom from sin. We have righteousness before God. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. It's all in the box. It's all in the gift marked salvation. And Paul's telling us it's our responsibility to work it out, to work it out, to put it together. So we have freedom from sin in Christ. And we're to work that out into our lives so that we hate sin, so that we turn from sin, we repent of sin constantly, we avoid sin, we say no to it. We don't feel bound to sin, we never think, well, I don't have any choice but to sin. Our minds are changed and our mouths are changed and our actions are changed to where we avoid sin. But not only that, we, are, we have righteousness before God in Christ. And we're to work that out. We're to live a righteous life. We're to think righteous thoughts. We're to have righteous motivations. We're to speak righteous words. We're to do righteous actions. We're to seek to do what is right, to live right. And we have the Holy Spirit living within us. Now, what does it look like to work that out? Well, Galatians 5, Paul says, walk by the Spirit. And what will that look like? A few verses later, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Fostering those things, working the ground where that's been planted, that's working out the salvation that God has given us. Work it out in your life. So if you boil it down to one word, you might say to work out your salvation means obedience. Now, I can show you how I got there. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, keep looking at the verse, and we're going to follow the verbs. Okay? Follow the verbs. As you have always obeyed, work out your own salvation. It is as, in the same way, as they have done this something in the past, they need to do something in the present. Working out our salvation is not different than the obedience of the past. 
It is to obey. Working out our salvation is not just to try to get God in a box and try to put every verse in a box and just systematize everything. That is not what work out your salvation means. It doesn't mean you need to work out in your mind and figure out how Jesus is both truly God and truly man. You'll never work that out. How is it that God is one and three? You're never going to work that out. We're meant to serve and worship and follow a God that we can't work out with our minds. He's higher than we are. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He's incomprehensible to us, not fully. He's told us everything we, we need to know, but we know that we can't know everything that we could know if we were God. But we know everything that we need to know, don't we? The working it out is to work it out in our lives. It is to obey. And it's no accident that Paul uses this word obedience, this word obey. Just look up, look up at verse 8, going back into the previous paragraph. Listen to what he says about Jesus. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we often say, and rightly so, that our goal in life is to be more like Jesus, right? We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose, so that we, if you keep going in Romans 8, might be conformed to the image of His dear Son. This is God's purpose for us. Well, what does the life of the Son look like? What does the image of the Son look like? Well, it looks humble. We saw that last week. And it looks obedient. And now Paul picks up that word and says, as you have obeyed in the past, keep working out your salvation now. Now, the last thing about this phrase is that he says, work out your salvation. He doesn't just say obedience, though that is what he's pointing to. He uses this language on purpose. The language means to work something until it's complete, that you don't stop short of doing everything necessary to complete it. You work and you work and you work and you work until it's done. And it means... Work. <laughs> it's very complicated, isn't it? Our English translation means, says work. The Greek means work. All right? Just very, just straightforward. That's exactly what it means. And there's imagery in the New Testament that, that, that points us to the fact that the life of the Christian is work. We think about the images of the athlete training seeking to compete for the prize. First Timothy, the, the hardworking farmer seeking to bring in the crop. It is the good soldier that we are to be. We are to be stationed and trained and on guard and equipped and all of these things. This is work. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7, train yourself for godliness. Now, one, one man, Kent Hughes, says this about it. The word train was a word with the smell of the gym in it, the sweat of a good workout. The successful Christian life is a sweaty affair. 
It's meant to be work. It's meant to be training. You know, just joining the gym doesn't, doesn't actually make you a healthy person. It doesn't make you a strong person. It could just make you a poorer person. <laughs> you actually have to do the work. And that's what he says, work it out. You can't coast into spiritual maturity. You can't just throw it in cruise control and you're going to get there. It's not going to just happen. Obedience may be simple, right? We say, God says this and I do this. But it's not always easy, is it? We have to fight against our own sinful hearts. We have to fight against, uh, we're fighting against the temptations that are around us, that that the devil would love to distract us, to deceive us. Obedience isn't really necessary here. So we must work. So I wonder in thinking about that, if you're a Christian, are you working out your salvation? Are you taking what's in the box, as it were, and putting it together in your life? Are you looking at the picture that you find in the Word of God of what it means to live as a Christian, and are you actually doing it? Because if you just dump the pieces of the puzzle on the table and you just stare at the picture for a while, but you don't do anything with the puzzle, you're not doing anything. You're just like, wouldn't it be nice if this puzzle looked like this? That'd be nice. I feel really bad because I haven't put this together. I feel terrible. And some people live their Christian lives that way. They walk through life and they keep reading the Bible and reading it, and all they ever feel is, man, I could never be this, I could never do that, I could never, I could never, I could never. But you see, for the Christian... I can never isn't the right way to say it because the Spirit of God lives within us. And if the Spirit of God lives within us, there is no I cannot obey here. Now, we may push back and say, I will not obey and sin in that way. But it isn't a matter of cannot. When you read the Scripture, are you just moved by it or are you moved to action? Are you obeying? Are you working hard at it? Are you sweating, as it were? Are you straining and striving to be godly, to walk in faithfulness, to put into practice what God says Your life as a Christian ought to be. Well, maybe you're not a Christian and you've thought for quite some time that you ought to be working for your salvation. Well, I hope you see that this phrase doesn't help you whatsoever. In fact, none of the Bible will help you with that. Because you can't earn it. But you can receive it by faith. And so I would urge you to consider the death and resurrection of Jesus and receive His gift. Work out your salvation. And then we see we're to work out our salvation before God. Work out your salvation before God. So Paul presses home the importance of this command by by, by calling them to obey the call to obedience. They're to obey the call to obedience. And he wants them to do it whether he's there or not. Look at verse 12. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, 
not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul's been in Philippi. He started the church. He spent time with them. He's seen their obedience work out. And he's saying, in the same way that you would obey while I was there, now, if I'm never there again, work out your salvation. He wants them to keep going. In other words, Paul's presence with them must not be the determining factor in their obedience. And interestingly enough, this is not the first time he said this. Look back at chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent. Isn't that compelling? He says that twice. He understands that when he shows up to a place, there may be a different level of commitment to obedience and to holiness than there might be if he weren't there. Now, in some sense, it is good to be encouraged by the presence of another Christian, isn't it? There is a kind of accountability just by being around other believers, especially those who've been influential in your lives. Maybe you hold your tongue more firmly. Maybe you restrain your anger. Maybe you don't complain as much because that person's in the room, and it's always a good thing to not sin. But the fact of the matter is, Paul can't be in the room all the time. Nobody can be in the room all the time. This is what parents are constantly thinking about as they're raising their children. One day we're not going to be in the room. One day we're not going to be coming around the dinner table to talk about this. They're going to be off. I once counseled, I've counseled a few people, but I think about one in particular who was living with, who came because he was struggling under a life-dominating sin. And, and, and we used tools to help him. We used, you know, uh, tracking things, and we used monitor, software monitoring, and we did all of that. But did you know that no matter how much of all that that you do, you still can't be in every room at every moment, and there's the sinful heart will still find a way to sin. It is, it's, like the, it's like Houdini. I mean, you put all the things on there, it's still going to get out, and you're not going to really know how, but it's still going to get out there, and it's still going to go after what it wants. Even if for some, it's just in the fantasies of the mind. And so nobody can be in every room. So he says, even if, Paul, even if I'm not there, obey. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, why would he use that phrase? Because he doesn't want them to fear and tremble in his presence. He doesn't want them to fear and tremble when he comes knocking at the door. Look at how it goes here. Work out your salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works. What is it? That ought to cause us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It is because even though that person isn't in the room, and even though that person who loves Jesus isn't in the room anymore, and even though that influential person isn't in the room, and even though I'm by myself, even though Paul's not in the room, God is in the room. You see, we live all of life before the face of God. The Latin phrase is coram Deo. We live all of life 
before the face of God. Paul may not be in every room with them, but God is. God is omnipresent. He is in all places at all times. He sees all things, visible and invisible, actions, words, thoughts, motives. We are open books to Him. Nothing can be hidden from His sight. God not only, and here's the thing. God only, not only sees what we do, He sees why we do it. That should drive down into us. He doesn't just see whether we do good for others. He sees why we do good for others. Is it for His sake? Is it to help others? Or is it to get the applause of others? Is it to get the thank you? Is it to be seen as good? He sees whether we give, and He sees why we give. He sees whether you do your best at school and at work, and He sees why you do your best at school and at work. He sees and he hears. He hears the outrage, the, out, the cry of outrage from so many against the sins of the culture. And he sees also whether we're just as outraged over the sins in our own lives. You see, as a Christian, you, we obey God not because the pastor might see it or the parents might see it or other Christians might see it or hear about it. We work out our salvation. We seek to live in obedience because the God who saved us is also with us. No one else may see and no one else may hear, but God does. And in those quiet moments, the moments before you go to sleep, when whatever it is in your life you're focused on, when you you think it's just me and my thoughts, Know this, it's not just you and your thoughts, because the Lord is there too. And so, work hard, Paul says, to obey the Lord. Work it out with fear and trembling. Not the kind of fear and trembling of a guilty criminal who is afraid of the judge's condemnation, more the fear and trembling of a son or daughter who doesn't want to displease their father because they love him, because they respect him, because they honor him. Peter says much the same thing. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. If you call on him as father, conduct yourselves with fear. Long to not displease your heavenly Father. Work out your salvation before Him with fear and trembling. And then last, work out your salvation because God is working in you. So back to the text, beginning with the last phrase of verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So see, not only is God present with them, God is working in them. More literally, this phrase is something like, for God it is who works the working in you. He works the working. He works it. According to chapter 1, verse 6, God began the good work in us. He's going to finish the good work He started. And here He said he, He's working the work. 
He works the working. He does all the work necessary for us to work out our salvation. He is working in us. You and I can't muster up the strength. Isn't that terrible? I've just done all this work to tell you, you must work out your own salvation. And now Paul comes along and says, now, Toby, don't forget to tell them that God is working in them. That only because God is working in you can you work out your salvation. Because I think we actually need to feel both very, very, with, with great sobriety, very clearly. We can't just skip over the work out your own salvation and only camp ourselves in verse 13, well, God's at work in us to will and to work. Because the only command in the whole, in that section is work out your salvation. The God working is the cause. But also, we can't just plant ourselves on work out our salvation and do it in such a way and pound on it in such a way that we ignore verse 13 and ignore the fact that because it is God who is at work in me to will and to work His good pleasure, that I even can work out my salvation. So don't just, just take all of the words of the Bible as they are. Believe them as they are. And if you feel tension between them, then okay, but don't give up one or the other because you feel a sense of tension. Take the commands of the Bible seriously. Take the statements about God's absolute power and your inability seriously. Take it all seriously. God works the working. And there are two things He says that He works in us, both to will, to will is the first thing. In other words, God gives us the desires needed to work out our salvation. He gives us the desire to forsake sin, the desire to pursue holiness, the desire to read our Bibles, the desire to pray, the desire to meditate, the desire to obey, the desire to grow. None of those desires come from the human heart. They are worked in us by God, His grace at work in us. And then He says, to work, to will, to work. Because just having the desire isn't enough. It has to actually be expressed. God gives us the power to do the work, to work out our salvation, to fight against sin, to strive for spiritual growth, to put the pieces of the Christian life together. God works in us. He gives us the desire. He gives us the power. And it all accomplishes, the last phrase of verse 13, His good pleasure. His purposes, His design, His plan. Now, at this point, can't you just imagine you're in the classroom and the hand goes up in the back and someone says, uh, so how is it that I'm working and God's working, but my working doesn't work unless God's working? How does that work? That's a good question, isn't it? It's an important question. I want to answer it with an illustration. We have three sons. One of our sons has always been interested in taking things apart and fixing them. He used to, when I would do things, as he was a very small boy with only plastic tools, and I would say I was going to do whatever it was, he would go find his tools and he would just follow me to wherever it was in the house that I was going to work. And I remember the day that I first showed him uh, how to use an actual drill, not the play drill that just goes, you know, and doesn't do anything. 
but we're going, to use, we're going to use the real drill today. He was very young. He was maybe six or seven, something like that. And I told him, I said, what you do is you pick, up, pick it up and you aim at your spot in the wall where you're going to put the hole and you pull the trigger and then you're going to, you're going to just kind of give some, give some pressure so that that drill will go through the wall. All right? Go. <laughs> well, he couldn't pick up the drill very well. And he couldn't pick it up well enough to hold it steady enough to aim at the actual point in the wall that I needed the hole. And he didn't have enough strength in his little finger. It was barely even long enough to get around the trigger, much less strong enough to pull the trigger. And so with all that, it didn't matter how much he leaned on the thing. It's not going to go in. It's not going to make the hole. He's not going to get it done. So, I said, try again. He went to pick up the drill. And as he went to pick up the drill, I put my hands on top of his hands. And he picked up with all his might, and I picked up with him. And he walked over to the wall, and I helped him move that thing to where it went right to the hole that needed to be drilled. And he put his little bitty finger on that, that trigger. And when he started to pull, I pulled. And when he moved forward, I moved forward. And then there was a hole in the wall. Now the question is, who drilled the hole? Who, who drilled the hole? Did he drill the hole? Well, yes. He did everything that I told him to do. And he drilled the hole. But wait, did I drill the hole? Yes. Apart from me. He could do nothing. So how did it work? At each step, I was there with my strength, giving him my strength to make sure that what needed to be accomplished got accomplished. And in working out our salvation, we do the willing and the working, but we only do that because the strong hand of our God reaches down and makes our will to will and makes our work to work. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. That puzzle I got for Christmas... It's still in the box. I haven't worked on it. I actually don't even know where it is. I didn't even open the package to look at the pieces. Most days, I don't even think about it. So I haven't enjoyed it as it's meant to be enjoyed. But here's the question. Have I truly received the gift as it was intended if I never open it? and never put it together, never seek joy in doing it. If I just take off the wrapping paper and I say, wow, that's great, thank you, and so I put it in a closet and I never look at it again, have I actually received it in the manner in which it was given for the reason it was given? Have I truly received the gift? Friends, if we don't work out our salvation... If we're not concerned to grow in Christ, 
we won't just miss out on joy. The fact is, we can't actually be sure that we've received the gift at all. Because the gift of salvation isn't truly received if you just have this moment of joy and then you put it away and it's in the closet and you never touch it again unless your pastor comes over and then you pull it out so he can see it. It's only truly received if it's worked out. So, before God, with fear and trembling, brothers and sisters, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. Let's pray together. Oh God, how thankful we are for the gift of salvation, for the gift of forgiveness, righteousness in your sight, for the Spirit sealing us and dwelling in us, for the hope of heaven. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace, that you would work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure so that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Help us, Lord. Help us to not be so focused on the command that we think it's all up to us. Help us to not be so focused on your work in us that we don't realize we must be responsible and work out our salvation. May it be true of each of us that we have truly received your great gift and that that is seen in our working out our own salvation with fear and trembling because you are at work in us. We pray in the name of the one who purchased our salvation with his, with his life, with his death. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.